Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In season three, we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. Our guest for this episode is Derek Morphew. In this conversation, we explore Derek's early and ongoing experience of God and delve into his work on kingdom theology. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. And uh, if you're interested, follow the links through to Derek's works on Amazon. To jump right in, Derek, you're a well-accomplished theologian, pastor, church planter as well. Behind the public face is a is an individual who started off just in the privacy of your own life and your own your own life journey. And I'm really interested to just start with your early experience of God and what that was like and how that led into you uh, picking up this, this as a career. Okay, well, if I think of my earliest experiences, uh, I, I grew up on a sugar farm and my father was a sugar farmer. And later on in our life, he uh, found the Lord after I witnessed to him, but he had a kind of a faith through his wartime experience when he was shot down by Messerschmitts and so on. Um, he was a fighter pilot, but it was like a nominal Anglican family and nothing in Sunday school kind of grabbed me. But the first time I, I think I knew there was something there was we had a farm about three farms away from, from us it was owned by people called the Hagermans who were of Scandinavian extraction. And they hosted the annual conference of all the Scandinavian missionaries in Southern Africa. And we, you know, you, you take everything to hang out with other people when you're isolated on a farm. And we were friends with them and the son was my age and the daughter was my sister's age. So we started attending the meetings and of course, the worship there was a bit like we sing today, you know, popular songs, very filled with um, live worship. And there was a guy called Johansson who, who did an exposition of Isaiah 53 one year, and I must have been about 12. And I remember him weeping as he talked about the cross and so on, and I, and the combination of that and something in the worship made me think, no, look, it was like a glimpse, if you like. But I didn't really change. And then more Scandinavians at the beach, we had a beach place and the neighboring house was owned by Scandinavians. And the grandfather was a Assemblies of God missionary to um, black independent church movements. And the granddaughter was a very beautiful young woman who was my first sort of uh, crush, I suppose. And anyway, I went with her to a Christian camp that was in a tent, you know, village. And we despised these Christians because they came down from Johannesburg and they, none of them were tanned and we were beach boys. And 
I went with her one night while they were having a meeting in the main uh, big tent. And I pulled down all their smaller tents. I literally collapsed them. And I went off into the night with my young girlfriend triumphant over the Christians. And I don't know why I did that to this day. I suppose I was a bit reacting to forced religion at my high school. And she just said to me, you, you can't be a Christian. And then, of course, her, her grandfather, who was this missionary, got hold of me and started talking to me about the Lord. And I said to her, well, of course, I'm a Christian. I'm baptized. I'm an Anglican, you know. But something struck. And so I was at this boarding school, Michael House, and we had to have um, a siesta after lunch every day and before we went out to play sport. And I started reading the New Testament. And I didn't comprehend a single thing. The one thing I comprehended was the verse that says a woman must be in submission to her husband. And I wrote this triumphantly to her in a letter. Um, so let's say I had these little brushes with something. And then Michael Cassidy, who I, I guess I don't need to introduce, right? Uh, Well-known South African evangelist. He had been to that school. And this was his first ever mission in a school. And, you know, he preached about Jesus and I just got confronted with the gospel. And I remember it wasn't, he didn't speak about the cross. He spoke more about the resurrection and the claim of Christ to divinity and lordship. And I remember the famous saying, he said, either Christ is Lord of all in your life or he's not Lord at all. And the challenge was to take the crown off my head of self-determination uh, and bow to Jesus and hand it over to him, which I did. <clears throat> and that was a real crisis conversion. Um, uh, and I then picked up the New Testament and within days I was reading it and understanding it, particularly Paul's letters. And, you know, God was like leaping off the page. And um, then I, I experienced like conviction of sin um, and realized that there was a deeper thing happening to me than simply... Um, a question of who's the head of my life. Um, and what happened is a couple of months later, Michael Cassidy came back to preach a sort of post-mission sermon. And he talked about how we know what God's will for our lives is and how God puts the deepest desire in your heart of what he wants you to do. And sometime after that, I was uh, lying in my bed in the dormitory at night. And I had the closest thing to an audible voice of God that I've ever had. Not that it was audible, it was internal, but definitely somebody was talking to me that was not my own consciousness. And God said to me, I was then planning to become a farmer and do 
agricultural engineering and so on. And he said, you're not going to do any of that. You're going to spend your life preaching the word of God. And here is the sign. You will preach to the school in a chapel service. Now, to give you an idea, High Church Anglican private school, and I do not think any schoolboy had ever preached to the whole, you know, teachers and staff and school in the history of that school before. And the that next year I became head boy. And the new headmaster, after a while, we became good friends, called me and he was called the rector, Michael House. And he said, look, I want you to preach in the chapel. And so my first ever sermon was there, fulfilling the word that God had spoken to me. And so I couldn't really dodge the calling. And that led to quite a crisis with my parents, because I said to them, I don't want to go into engineering, I want to go into theology. And my father in the beginning was so disturbed by the change in me that he wanted me to, he went to the school authorities and said, what have you done to my son? I think he needs to be sent to a psychologist. Um, anyway, they, they really did see a huge change in me and, and very generously then supported me to go to Rhodes University and study theology, um, which I did. So, Timothy, um, I mean, we can talk later maybe about my study journey and, and roads, but um, those are my definitely my first brushes and my crisis conversion experience. What a fascinating moment, Derek, Derek if I can just jump in there as I, I'm listening to you describe the scene of, of being in the dormitory at night, I think you said. Is that one of those traditional dormitories where yeah. it's you on your own or, or is it the group dorm of the younger years? No, no. The group dorm. And, you know, there's lights out at some 10 o'clock or something and then you're all supposed to be quiet. And... And, and so were you sleeping and you were awakened by God or you were? No, I, I was not yet asleep. I was not yet asleep. And then this experience happened. And had it, was it something that you anticipated or did it sort of come out of the blue? It wasn't something you'd been praying and preparing? No, totally out of the blue. Well, well, look, I guess Michael's sermon about how you know the will of God for your life had triggered some sort of process in me. But I wasn't anticipating this at all. What did happen, though, is soon after my conversion, because I was a prefect and quite a, you know, a leader then, I went and gathered the other boys in the school who had had a, a conversion experience, and I went to the rector, the, um, the priest in the school, um, the chaplain, who was a lovely evangelical Anglican and was my first spiritual father, really, and, and I basically we gathered them all together and started a Bible study. And I can't remember the chronology, but I suppose I was discovering a love for the scriptures and a desire to get other people to get into the, you know, discipleship. 
But I think this experience actually predated that. I think it was quite soon after, maybe a month or two after, I committed my life to Christ in, in his evangelistic uh, sermons. And, and what was kind of the, as, as you talk about that experience of God speaking to you, I mean, I mean, it's amazing. The first thing that I reflect on is this idea of this voice that comes out of the blue and speaks to you, as you say, whether, whether it's audible in the room, which is why I'm, I'm wondering whether it was something that disturbed other people or just internal. It definitely wasn't audible in the room. It was internally audible in my consciousness. And that kind of sort of comes unbidden. But uh, so what are the, the moments that sort of follow that? What's that like? As you've, you've heard this and this voice says, you know, the proof is that you're going to preach in chapel. Is, is there a continued conversation there? Did the voice, I mean, did God speak and then sort of fall silent? Was there was anything that followed that? No, you can't be serious, God. Or is that you, God? Or was there recognition this is definitely God? Yes. No, I, I accepted it right away. And it's a long time ago now, so I suppose I lay in bed for a while thinking about it before I fell asleep. Um, what did happen in that following year is, again, this connection with the girlfriend, the neighbor at the beach, and the Pentecostal grandfather, um, is her mother started sending me the magazines that were the early charismatic, you know, the, at that stage, there was the charismatic renewal in the Methodist church with people like Brian Bird and, and Derek Crumpton and others. And there was, I think it was a charisma magazine or something. And they were all talking about, you know, getting filled with the spirit and speaking in tongues and so on. And so I used to go into the crypt under the chapel, which was like a very quiet place that hardly anybody went into. And I'd sit there and pray to have this charismatic experience and absolutely nothing happened to me. That was to follow at Rhodes University. But I mean, I did start seeking God, you know, in, in, in a sort of very early prayer life, I suppose. I, I find it so interesting because, you know, some of my experiences are very similar to that in, in that it's as if God draws near and just says one thing almost. There's a, a word or a sentence. And, and often I'm left kind of going, well, no, no, don't just dump and run. I, 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 want, <laughs> I, I want to talk more. But often there are these moments of just it comes out of nowhere and there's this moment of just this. And, and then nothing else. But there are some times when it seems to just linger a little longer and there's a little bit more of, of that interaction. And it's just always fascinating to interact with people who've had a similar type experience of just, there's this, there's almost a touch in the moment, just that presence that just drops, a, drops something that's either internally audible or you know, in the stillness of your heart, there's all this different language around it. Thank you, that's, that's fascinating. That experience then then follows on with with the confirmation. The you used the language of sign earlier. What was that experience like for you, both in terms of preparation and in terms of of of, of you know standing in front of your peers and the adults and that around you and and, and preaching? Because I I imagine that in terms of the the history of the school being the the, the first and 
you know, potentially there hasn't been anyone after that as well who's who's preached like that as a as a scholar. What was that like for you? What was your 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 sense of preparation and interaction with God along the way into that? Well, I am I'm very sorry because my my Anglican priest there, uh, chaplain, actually recorded it, and somewhere along the line I lost the recording. Um, and but I do recall. One of the things is, you know, when you're at Michael House, you you receive a very British high-class <laughs> accent with a potable mouth. When I went to Rhodes University in Grahamstown, where they all speak a kind of Eastern Cape slang, the potato fell out of my mouth. And uh, there was almost like if you hear that recording, you think, wow, um, did you sound like that? I think my wife said that to me once, she said really um but what by then you see i'd had a year of these weekly bible studies with a whole group of us and i was reading um the scriptures a lot and i do remember i my text was enter by the narrow gate because wide is the gate that leads to destruction but narrow is the way that leads to life. And I basically was doing a, a, another evangelistic shot at my peers, you know, that you must commit your life to, to Christ. So I do remember what I preached about. The other thing, of course, is that at a school like Michael House, you, you do learn public speaking. So I was in the school debating society. And one of the duties of the head prefect is to speak at speech day which is a very big speaking engagement. All the parents come from all over the country and the whole school is there and all sorts of visitors, I think even the press. And um, I do remember, you know, my school teachers and stuff said I did a pretty good job. So in that sense, it wasn't a terrifying thing to do public speaking. Um, and so I don't recall being very nervous. I was more excited. I just wanted to evangelize the rest of the school, you know. Um, I'm interested in the journey from there as well, because there's quite a there's there's a there's a transition from the classical preaching to preach to to where you've landed in recent years. And you know, I think your theology and that that fits in with that. But in between, there's quite a there's a couple of these significant jumps that you've made. And I know that you went from being Anglican to being Pentecostal, and then you transitioned from there to being in the vineyard. There's a world of difference generally between the experience within the charismatic Pentecostal uh, environment and where you've landed up now. Now, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking back to my own journey and just perhaps projecting from that. So forgive me if I'm doing that. But, but I remember being in environments where they were tremendously emotionally charged. There was a lot of rah-rah and hype. <laughs> you know, the the expectations were quite quite different. Whereas transitioning out of that into into uh, more of a vineyard environment, it was almost inverted. There was a real sense of the tangible presence of God, as opposed to just the emotionalism of people. Now, I, I'm wondering how that journey played out for you and your transition into the Pentecostal environment, and in some senses, your reason for shifting out of that. But, but I'm thinking 
very specifically about this this thing of the interaction of with God as a person in that scenario. It, it's not a it's it's not a very clear question on on, on my end, so I'll I'll happily edit this ramble out. <laughs> but but I'm just I'm just aware of the difference between almost what what we do by way of what we do when we do ministry and how we can substitute our emotionalism and the hype for the reality of God. And I'm wondering how that journey has played out for you over the years and and if there's something similar in your journey at all or not. You know, I must say my early exposure to the Assemblies of God was nothing to do with hype. Okay. Um, And very real experiences. So maybe I should just continue the story a little bit. So I got to Rhodes and, um, you know, Michael House is supposed to produce Anglican clergymen. And it had never done that for decades. And so I think it was four of us who'd all been impacted by Michael Cassidy's mission, arrived at Rhodes and some of us were doing theology, but others, others of us were doing other things, but we were all converts. So the, um, actually our Old Testament theology professor, uh, Ash, Ashby, um, was also like a mentor for the Anglican theological students. And he was saying, oh, wonderful. We've got a whole lot of new priests, you know? And so he got me to join a group of theological students that were all Anglicans. And of course, uh, let me stop this. He um, uh, was hoping, you know, we'd all become priests and I, I, and we'd all worship at the cathedral there. And I went to the cathedral and it was, it was worse than the high church at, at Michael House. And most of the theological students I could see had no personal encounter with God at all. They were there for all sorts of other motives. And I decided, look, um, I couldn't, um, you know, um, I couldn't justify um, being in that group. And the other interesting thing is that the Bishop of Grahamstown had been to Michael House and was at the, at Michael House with my father. And they had been competing against each other in the long distance races. And when I was at Michael House, his son, who was then my peer, immediately decided that I was a future um, track runner guy. And he started um, uh, coaching me with a stopwatch. Morphew, you are going to win, you know? And it's really quite remarkable. He was older than me. And I did. I I won every long distance race. So when we got to Grahamstown, there was this connection with the bishop. And again, assumed we were all going to be Anglican priests. But uh, through joining the Student Christian Association, I met a whole lot of the students who were going to the Assemblies of God Church. And it was full of students. And the pastor was an excellent uh, pastor. And so we turned up there and it was there that I encountered, you know, people speaking in tongues and the Pentecostal experience. Um, 
and uh, I started seeking it and various people laid hands on me and, and nothing happened. Then one day I was sitting in a philosophy class and the philosophy lecturers were guys who had been theological students and had lost their faith and they were doing their best to help us lose our faith. And I had an experience of like heat and fire landing on me in the philosophy class, but I didn't sort of misbehave or anything. And I then went back to my room in the residence and started speaking in tongues and was filled with joy as well. So the Archbishop, he later became the Archbishop, but he was then Bishop of Grahamstown, told us that he prayed a prayer and he said, God, whatever is making these Michael House boys leave the Anglican Cathedral and go to this funny church down the road, I need to know about it, even if I have to speak in tongues. And he then told us later, he was hosting a couple for lunch in the bishop's residence, which had a chapel attached to it. And he was pouring them a gin and tonic. And he was seized with this desire to pray. And he excused himself and went into the chapel and got knocked on the floor and started speaking in tongues. And from there, the whole charismatic renewal swept through the Anglican church in South Africa. Wow. And he, what he did is he got his personal chaplain to become a member of that Assemblies of God church for two years to learn as much as he could about basically being charismatic. And then he became the Archbishop of Cape Town and his chaplain, a guy called Ivan Weiss, moved with him to Cape Town. And I then moved to Cape Town, you know, to become a, a pastor. And then we had a whole season of kind of ecumenical uh, charismatic unity between the Assemblies of God, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, because there was a broad spread of, of uh, people that were now charismatics. And I was part of a sort of citywide ecumenical group of pastors um, in the city. And we had lots of combined meetings where we would all get together, all of our congregations and mass gatherings at St. John's Parish in uh, Weinberg and uh, Mowbray Presbyterian Church. And, and so in those days, you could say liturgically or in terms of how meetings were held and songs were sung and ministry happened, there was very little difference between the Assemblies of God and these charismatic churches. Simultaneous with the charismatic movement was the Jesus People Revival. So when I arrived in Cape Town, it was still going. And the Assemblies of God churches were the ones particularly uh, where all the hippies came. And of course, they dressed in the most undignified manner. And there was a struggle with these Assemblies of God people who were quite legalistic about dress codes. And they had to change their ideas because these hippies wouldn't change their dress codes. But were full of love for God, you know, and full of evangelism. So, so, so Derek, you, you 
you, you transition like linguistically between the Pentecostal experience and the charismatic experience. And when you talk like that, it sounds like it's the same, it is the same experience, but you use the two, the language in two different ways, you know, or you use the two different terms. Do, do you distinguish between the charismatic and the Pentecostal experience in that sense? Not at all. So, I mean, if you want to go into it theologically, in my book, Demonstrating the Kingdom, there's a chapter on the empowering of the spirit. And, and there's a difference in theological formulation. Pentecostalism has a very demarcated doctrine of, of subsequence and evidence. And charismatic theologians don't really do that. And Wimber pioneered a kind of, what should I say? Uh, a position that is nearly neither classical Pentecostal nor conservative evangelical. But, and I, I've written about that in that chapter. But the experience of, you know, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, uh, that is not necessarily the same as your conversion experience and, and empowering you and opening up the dimension of, charismatic gifts like prophetic gifts and healing gifts and so on. That is common to, so people often talk about the Pentecostal slash charismatic movement. And Wimber was clear that the vineyard is Pentecostal in experience, but not Pentecostal in theology. And, you know, more fundamental than that is the common repudiation of cessationism, that the gifts of the spirit died out with the apostles. And since then, we've only got the Bible. You know? um, now, later on, I, was, I would come up against difficulties I had with the Assemblies of God. And because I hosted Wimber's first visit to Cape Town and Lonnie Frisbee and so on, I found myself far more comfortable in the vineyard. I, I would imagine that, uh, that that frisbee did push the uh, the dress style and behavior a little bit. <laughs> you pushed many boundaries, yeah. Derek, if I can just come back to that that sort of first transition, although it doesn't sound as though you don't sound as though the Anglican Church was home, but there is that sort of sense of moving away from Michael House and that tradition and background in some ways. And I guess family. Even if I go back earlier, you were talking about kind of Anglican home background. What was it, you talk about visiting the cathedral in Grahamstown what, and, and then deciding, no, definitely not. Can you put your finger on some specifics around what was it that you thought, no, absolutely not? And then what was it that drew you into the Assemblies of God? Well, I was drawn into the Assemblies of God through the Students' Christian Association and meeting a whole lot of students who were members of both the SCA and and that Assemblies of God Church. So, and one of them was a very attractive young woman who became my girlfriend for a few years. So um, I suppose there were various motives, but uh, you know, I, I landed up in these meetings and I remember the first meeting, I was so offended, I decided I'd never return because people were praying with their eyes open and in a different sort of, you know, extempore style. And it was a shock to me. But then I couldn't stay away because I knew something was going on there. Um, now, for my parents, it was a terrible shock. 
And they said to me, what have we done wrong that we brought you up wrong that you leaving your Anglican church and you going to this funny group. And, and they saw it as a sort of cultural repudiation. Um, but they soon, you know, got over that. Uh, and in fact, after I had witnessed to my father for quite a while, he suddenly announced to me, this is back in, on the North Coast, that he was going to come with me to the local Assemblies of God Church. And uh, the pastor there is now a close friend of mine called Anthony Balcom, who's just retired as a professor of contextual theology at uh, uh, Peter Maritzburg, uh, you know, campus of the University of KZN. Um, and uh, so we, we arrived at this church and um, there was a guy who used to work for Ford Spares and my father knew him well, a guy called Gascoigne. And in the service, he prophesied. And my father was entirely shocked. He said, you know, Stan's not capable of doing what he did. And so he actually, you know, later on got baptized and uh, uh, another milestone for my father, he visited Grahamstown. And we had as a visiting speaker, Nicholas Bengu. Now, I don't know if you know the history of Nicholas Bengu, but he's like a giant. And when Bengu spoke, he'd speak for over an hour. And when he finished, you'd think he'd been speaking for 10 minutes and wondered why it stopped. And my father was quite a racist. All the sugar farmers were racists. And he was just absolutely blown away by the, not only the, inspiration but the dignity that Bengu had and um, I mean he started getting rattled out of his racist uh, assumptions so the culture shock was there and and I think um, I suppose predominantly the people in the assemblies of God weren't exactly the upper middle class type of people you get in an Anglican church but they weren't exactly very different. I mean, many of them were university lecturers at, at Rhodes and many of them were students, you know, from all over the place. Um, so it was really later through the influence of Lonnie Frisbee and Wimber that I came into conflict with some issues in the Assemblies of God that was more to do with church government and uh, yeah, I did question some things theologically and that became quite threatening to the leaders. They weren't used to people with theological training who asked questions uh, and so on. Uh, but yeah, those early days, there was such a, um, an overlap between the Jesus People revival that was happening in the Assemblies of God and the charismatic renewal and the ecumenical um, unity um, that my transition um, out, of, out of that was more uh, to do with, I would say, church politics issues. Um, and now it's not that I am not aware of the hype you get in, in some Pentecostal churches, you know, for sure. 
your your experience wasn't wasn't characterized by that really is is what i'm hearing i think also in fairness i mean there's there, there are a few years between you and i <laughs> and when you're talking about uh when you're talking about these years uh just just to put it into context which which decade are we are we talking about here well it was not before the rinderpest but it was quite long ago <laughs> yeah so you're talking about the early 70s um I um, moved to Cape Town in 1973. So that was when Bill Burnett became the Archbishop as well. And it was through the 70s into the early 80s that we had that whole charismatic unity, Jesus people revival thing. And then Wimber came in the early 80s. Yeah, I, I think uh, <laughs> just to put that in context, you moved to Cape Town a few years before I was born. Yes, my experience of growing up and uh, being exposed to, you know, the Methodists, Anglicans, and the, the, the Pentecostals and Charismatics was was quite different. But I mean, that's a it's an it's it's an entirely different story. What I what I like from what you you're saying is just that sense of of almost togetherness. You know, you you went from experiencing an Anglican church where your response for lack of a better phrase was hell no like I can't do this to to almost uh, like there being a synergy later on you know to to working together to there being a tremendous amount of of overlap uh, both in the work that you're doing within the church and and I think beyond that as well well you you must realize the contrast the the, the cathedral in Grahamstown was high church bells and smells um and no real worship, no real preaching. It was all the, the liturgy. And one of the issues I had to face was, could I become an Anglican clergyman? And I then came up against pedo-baptism and the wearing of priestly robes. And I decided I could do neither. And it really upset my church history professor who was hoping I was going to become an Anglican priest. Um, when I told him there was no way I could do that. Um, so it was, it was, but then you remember that Bill Burnett now speaking in tongues and leading charismatic meetings around the country, the liturgy in those meetings was entirely different matter. I mean, he still did his liturgical services like before with all his robes and stuff, but but the renewal meetings were much more like, you know, much more charismatic. And it was also at that stage that there, there was a whole movement of, of worship um, renewal um, all around the world. So there was a sort of a new liturgy was born in these ecumenical meetings that has had very little similarity with the formal liturgical uh, practices. And I still find it difficult to um, connect. I know some people love that and the sort of mystery and all of that, but I, I still, I suppose, because I grew up as a beach boy and a bit of a hippie, um, I, I, I struggle with that, that sort of spirituality. And, and because at Michael House, we had to go to chapel every day and we had to sing hymns and stuff. I still struggle with uh, singing that 
you know, traditional hymns rather than more contemporary um, uh, songs that are written. I mean, I still love some of the hymns, but um, we were sort of uh, straight-jacketed in a very liturgical kind of practice at Michael House, and I, I did react negatively to that. And tell me, Derek, your, your, your love for theology, you, you went on to... To, to, to study just beyond um, those early years. When, when did you really dig into that? Well, I loved my theology at Rhodes and I, I majored in systematic theology and biblical studies. And um, so, and, and I started emerging as what you'd probably call a lay preacher in that Assemblies of God church. Um, so that was there. I mean, a little anecdote is that my professors and said, you know, said to me, look, you need to go on and do a master's because I, I, I cummed my bachelor's degree. I got, I, I got, uh, distinctions in, in both fields. And I remember that the women's temperance union who are into banning alcohol offered me a complete scholarship boarding and lodging and academic to do a master's degree at Rhodes in theology if I would write one essay supporting abstinence from alcohol and sadly I, I read the bible and concluded I could never do that with a good conscience <laughs> okay. And I was so, you know, zealous as a young guy to get into the ministry that I didn't do that. But then when I got to, to Cape Town, I mean, one of the sort of in-between things was when I was the pastor of what was then the Tigerberg Assemblies of God, I started a night school um, where people came from all over the Western Cape. And we had, uh, I mean, it's way ahead of its time. We had video cameras. We videoed the lectures, um, and it, it was a kind of beginning of a theological training school. Uh, and uh, it was a great experience for me. So, and the other thing that happened is once I became a pastor, I found people gravitating towards me in the churches I pastored who wanted to become pastors themselves. And so I, I think one day I counted something like 10 people, couples, individuals who landed up in the ministry later that I sort of helped along their journey. So the desire to train and equip people sort of happened along the way. And then when I was at... at um, Tigerberg living in Durbanville, I, I felt I needed to continue my theological education. And my parents, again, very kindly um, offered to pay for a master's degree. And um, I don't know if you want me to tell the story of how the master's became a PhD. Yes, yes, please. So uh, my, my, my tutor was, was, um, head of the department and he was terribly busy 
and he basically said, look, I can't, I can't actively engage with you. You, you just got to do all the research on your own. It was a complete research masters, not, no coursework. And um, John DeGrucci, who you probably know, he's, he's not mm. quite a well-known guy. Yes. Yep. And so for a whole year, I just worked all on my own and I, and I wrote this thesis and um, I handed it in. And, uh, you know, about a month later, he called me and said, well, I've read your thesis, come and see me. And I had one of the worst 30 seconds of my life. So he sat there and he said, Derek, this is not a master's thesis. And can you imagine after all the work I'd done and the blighter hadn't helped me along the way at all. And then he said, this is a doctoral thesis. And I'm going to ask the department to make an exception and upgrade you from a master's to a doctorate. And so my master's thesis became a, a PhD thesis. Derek, I'd wanted to ask you a little bit about this, um, this mentoring relationship. You talked about people moving into ministry. Was that sort of a, just a, a happy occurrence as part of ministry that that just seemed to happen? Was it intentional? Was it something that you felt God had spoken to you about? Um, was it just, you know, you, you spent time with people and later on just happened to, to join the dots and people had gone into ministry. What was that like? I'm thinking of, of, of this journey for yourself into ministry. And then obviously, what, what does that mean? What do you pour out into others as they move forward into ministry? With what sort of angle, what sort of influence, what sort of sort of bent, um, if I can put it that way. I'm just, that's, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, so I would say it came looking for me at first. And I think, you know, I was one of the younger pastors in the image of God and one of the only ones with a theology degree. And uh, I became a little bit of a leader amongst my peers. And then my practice as a pastor, we did a lot of active pastoral ministry. I used to do a thing where we would visit all the members of the church in their homes and, and especially follow up newcomers um, to, you know, do evangelism and discipleship. And so I started always taking a, a second person with me on these visits and you know you meet the people and you listen to them and you end up praying for them and so on and then I started doing kind of like discipleship training pro you know stuff and then linked to that in the assemblies of God in those days you had a thing called open ministry where Sunday night the main preacher preached but Sunday morning was open to anybody and, of course, we had some wild stuff. But if you were a young guy and you desired to grow, you could cut your teeth on a, like a 10-minute sermonette, you know? So then, of course, I started spotting this type of young potential person. And often I would then take them with me on my pastoral visits. And then, I mean, 
the the leadership in the assemblies of God would sort of um, what should I say poach my my proteges from me and send them off to lead a church somewhere you know and it was a bit it was not very well done I mean we talked then in those days about sink or swim you know very little real good training and off you go because you've shown potential in the local church to preach and visit people and I remember my one of my guys a guy called Malcolm Hedding who's now quite well known as well he landed up and after his first week pastoring a church he phoned me and he was absolutely shattered he said Derek you didn't tell me that it was going to be like this you know um, but anyway yeah so after you know you you're on number four or five or six like this you start turning the dots and thinking well. And that's, I think, why I started that night school um, out of that. So all of my orientation towards theological training later on in Vineyard Institute, Vineyard Bible Institute, was always raising up the future preachers and teachers of the church. That was always my focus. It was never academia. You know, I've never become a, a professor at a, at a university paid to simply be an academic. All my work has been in, in training institutions for raising up leaders. And if I think about, you know, and just... I'm drawn back to this dorm experience that you're talking about and then listening to you as you, you're talking about sort of other people moving into ministry. Um, and, and just on the surface, as I, as I hear you, there's a couple of things that are, that just sort of stand out and I'd love to dig a little, little deeper. You know, you talk about that, that Sunday morning and people could stand up and prepare something to speak or, um, you know, something like that. And then after that, you would start to invite them to come around with you to visit families and, and do this sort of pastoral rounds. And then this institute, um, I think you said the night, night Institute, is that, am I correct? Night school, there we go. Were you, you know, a lot of, a lot of Tim and my conversations are around this kind of the experience of God, the personhood of God, the presence of God, etc. And I think of this, this voice that says to you, you know, you're going to spend your life preaching the word of God. As you're walking with people and, and them going into ministry, how much of that is around the practicalities of teaching and preaching, etc.? And how much of that journey is around um, experiences like this in, in the people's lives? Is, is there an element of what, what was their dorm experience, the immediacy of God, presence of God? Is, is, is that kind of a part of that journey? Is that something that's uh, sort of of high importance for you i mean I, I don't i don't really know you other than just listening for the last hour so as i'm trying to get to know you i'm also trying to think around where you stand within these sorts of things so that's a very broad ranging uh, i i wouldn't know if i can dare call it a question <laughs> but as i'm and i'm joining dots and i'm thinking through things is, is that an important part of, of the mentorship and the time spent with people? Was there more of an angle towards the practicalities, preparing them for, you know, actual running of church, preaching, teaching, some of the pastoral work? How did that experience and presence, personhood of God, etc., cetera, um, figure for you in the journey? Um, I don't know if that's clear enough. I mean, I'm happy to try and refine it. It's about as clear as mud as I put it together. 
Yeah, so look, what I heard God say to me was I was going to become a preacher and teacher of the word. I didn't reflect then on whether that meant pastoral ministry or anything else. But everything in my journey after that is the reason you preach the word is you, you want to lead others to faith in Christ and you want to disciple those to grow, you know, and so you land up in a community where, um, I mean, my passion has always been for the local church and for discipling people um, and, uh, you know, an understanding um, of, of uh, the word of God uh, that I have is, is, it's, you know, inextricably bound up with the mission to, uh, you know, bring that reality into people's lives and through them into, into the whole world. So the whole you know, mission of God. Um, so, um, yeah, look, maybe I should just bring in the, the times when I felt God's voice to me in that very tangible way are very few in my life. Um, mostly, you know, I, I, the sense of guidance you get is more intuitive and through your reading and things like that. But the other moment that was a pivotal shift is later we, we then had this thing called the Christian Ministries Network, where by now I had left the Assemblies of God and I was leading an independent group of charismatic churches that were predominantly influenced by Frisbee and Wimber, but also partly by people like Terry Virgo from England and so on. And I think I ended up leading about 25 churches. And we got together with other leaders who had similar movements, Dudley Daniels, who led New Covenant Ministries, Derek Crumpton, Foundation Ministries, and so on. There were four or five of us. And we started having joint conferences and we also had meetings where the sort of leadership team maybe five or six people from each of these church networks would, would get together and in one of those meetings there's a guy called rob rufus who i think is in singapore or something now or hong kong and he's like a prophetic guy and he stood up and publicly started telling me what my future was going to be like, like for the next 10 years. And basically everything he said then started to happen over the next 10, 20 years of my life. And it was a shift from being mostly pastoral to sort of specializing more in biblical teaching and doing it on a global scale. So a, a movement away from my home country to the rest of the world and, and, and kind of synchronizing was, with that was that I was asked to teach on the theology of the kingdom at a vineyard conference in Anaheim by John Wimber and because of what I taught there, I started getting invited all over the world by, 
you know, vineyard leaders in Europe and England and South America and Australia and so on to, to do the same stuff. And then out of that, well, no, roughly the same time, I got invited to take over Vineyard Bible Institute and then later came the Dean of Vineyard Institute. And basically Rob Rufus prophesied that pivotal shift. And, and uh, so I must say, I, you know, you, you can doubt a lot of personal prophecies, but this was one that was pretty accurate. The, the kingdom theology stuff, just to pick up on, 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 on that quickly, it's kind of become the main focus of your theological work. Is that, uh, is that fair to say? So what happened is back as a young Assemblies of God pastor in Cape Town, I loved preaching. I preached a lot to my congregation. And after a while, maybe after about a year or so, I realized that I was almost entirely preaching out of Paul's letters. And I started reading the Gospels and was disturbed that I couldn't get what was going on. And I noticed how frequently Jesus referred to the kingdom of God. And I thought, I, I don't know what he's talking about. So I then somehow discovered George Ladd's book. And George Ladd was the professor at Fuller Theological Seminary who sort of took the early discovery of kingdom theology and introduced it into American evangelicalism. But more importantly, Wimber was teaching in the Institute of Church Growth at Fuller at the same time and was impacted by, by Ladd. And so I never forget um, when Wimber came to Cape Town and we had an off day. And because I was hosting him, you know, he had like 50 young people with him. We went off, just a few of us. And I took him wine tasting. And so we're driving around in this, in this sort of little combi with some of his team and some of my colleagues and we start talking and we discover that we are both heavily influenced by George Ladd. And so what happened is I then started sharing with colleagues of mine like um, Costa Mitchell and Alexander Fenter and John Fisher. And we, we started reading George Ladd together. And I often say when I talk about this, it was, it was a bit like getting born again, again, because I suddenly started seeing Jesus like I had never seen him before and realizing that his, you know, announcement and demonstration and explanation of the kingdom was, was everything. And so my first little booklet on the kingdom of God I wrote for that night school um, in the early 70s. And that began the journey of kingdom theology. And I mean, it was quite a lot later. Uh, Wimber came in the 80s. And then I don't remember, but it was quite a few years after that that I was asked to speak at that Anaheim conference. So it grew over years, but it started with this discovery of George Ladd and 
at the same time, I could not accept the dispensational teaching in the Assemblies of God, the pre-tribulation rapture. And of course, if you understand kingdom theology, that thing gets blown out of the water. And I caused quite a controversy in the Assemblies of God by, by repudiating that. And um, that was all part of this discovery of the kingdom of God. And Derek, do you mind if I jump in there? I just, I just wonder if it's helpful for our listeners, if it's possible to give a quick, I don't know, three to five minute um, sketch for us when you talk about kingdom of God theology um, as a background for people listening in on, on your story and, and as we kind of go along in the conversation. Is that possible to just give a quick sketch of, of kingdom of God theology? Yeah, so... In my latest book called The, the Kingdom Reformation, in part one, I describe the historical origins of, of kingdom theology. So what I'm going to say is sort of found in there, if people want to get more detail. What has changed since really the Second World War is the literature of what is called Second Temple Judaism became available for the first time in history. The, the, the discovery that many people will know about was the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they are part of a much bigger um, collection of Jewish texts from the time of Jesus, the era of Jesus. And these were not really available up until uh, some of them, you know, the end of end of the beginning of the of the of the 20th century end of the 19th century but really growing in in number in terms of them being translated etc etc um, and the Dead Sea Scrolls really only became available for most readers in the 60s um, and so out of this came a whole controversy and what was realized was that the world view of Judaism was apocalyptic and eschatological, that everything was about two ages, this age we live in now, and the arising of a new age or a, or a coming age, where God would intervene in a decisive way and fulfill all the expectations of, of, about the coming Messiah, and his kingdom would come. And the Jewish prophets the Old Testament prophets only saw it in terms of two eras, this world we live in now, and then this final end of the world apocalyptic moment when everything would change. And Jesus came speaking entirely in eschatological language about this, this end, this age ending and the new age beginning. But he began to say and demonstrate that prior to the final end of history, the powers of that future world were already present in his ministry. So a whole debate took place amongst theologians and the end of it is, is what N.T. Wright has coined as inaugurated eschatology, that the end of the world has been inaugurated in advance in the life ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. 
creating a new reality where those who, who experience Jesus or the Holy Spirit now live simultaneously in two ages at the same time. We are still part of this age, but, but experientially we are already living in the, in the coming age. And uh, this understanding of, of Jesus and of theology really was never, well, it was never understood in the whole of church history until various German scholars in the early post-war period like Oscar Kuhlmann and others started um, articulating it. And it is that rediscovery of who Jesus was and what his primary message was that is now ongoing with famous names like N.T. Wright and others who, and in the academic discipline, it's called Jesus Research. And so you can join the dots of an ongoing investigation of Jesus from Kuhlmann and Ritterbus and Ladd through to these scholars today. And as it grows, its ripple effects get larger and larger, causing actually the whole of theology to be reviewed. Because Jesus is so pivotal, if we suddenly have a fresh understanding of who he was, it means we must have a fresh understanding of, of salvation and the church and ministry and mission and everything. Yeah, so maybe there's a summary. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks very much. That contextualizes it nicely in terms of in terms of the the research and the writing and almost where this new rediscovery uh, comes from. I've often found that one of the the big challenges. <laughs> Is that is that we talk about the good news generally within Christianity, um, and of course for Jesus that's the good news of the kingdom of God, and for Paul it's also good news of the kingdom of God, and there's an interlinking between preaching and demonstration, but that's largely absent, both any understanding of what that kingdom is and what it looks like and how we're supposed to, you know and whether ministry is supposed to include those things or not ends up being quite quite absent, you know I, I think. You know, if you read someone like Frank Viola, uh, you kind of get the impression that the kingdom is all about the poor and that that's, you know, the kingdom of God isn't really about, uh, you know, or should I, to frame it positively, the kingdom of God is all about a review of our relationship with the poor and the liberation of the poor, I guess, with uh, almost like a socioeconomic justice. Um, if you read some of the older Catholic stuff, uh, the kingdom of God is about Christendom firstly, and then later the institution of the church. And so in some senses, this, you know, to, to throw out the language of kingdom theology is to put it into, in some senses, quite a competitive pool. You know, uh, there's a lot of wrestling for what this kingdom of God means and a lot of language for people around, well, it's within you. And so it's functioning everywhere and indiscernible. There's, there's no specific evidence or experience of the kingdom or anything like that. How, how do you respond to some of those wider thoughts in the kingdom? Well, one of the problems is that in the more Pentecostal side of things, there's a lot of use of the term kingdom, kingdom of God. But what they mean by that is something entirely different. 
And, you know, in those circles, people talk about kingdom now, and they, they don't really understand the whole idea of the inaugurated eschatology. Now, that said, I recently engaged, you know, and read a number of prominent Pentecostal scholars. And I've had some of them write nice comments for my, my book. And these guys do really get this. But it has not yet become what you'd call um, the language of the Christian street. And there's still predominantly this dispensational legacy, pre-tribulation rapture. And so the kingdom language in those circles is, is not yet aware of the pivotal discoveries that have led to a whole new understanding of Jesus that really only started after the Second World War in, in the whole history of theology. Um, and so all the previous iterations of what the kingdom of God means, whether they are Catholic or Reformed or whatever, are, 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 have been trumped, if you like, pardon the word, um, by a, a, a whole new theological genesis. Um, and that's what I try to explore, you know, in my Kingdom Reformation book. Um, and so there, there is a, not a repudiation, but a, a review necessary of all previous articulations of the Kingdom of God. You know, there's, there's the challenge of, of what it means practically for doing church as well. There's implications for what it means in terms of our spirituality, uh, our sense of our expectation of what a relationship with God looks like. And I guess any of those topics, they, they, they merit some deep dive conversations as well. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, uh, of the limits of, of, of time that we have today, but I'm wondering if you'd be open to, um, to having a few deep dive conversations around this. Or you mean now or at some other date? Some other date. Yeah, no, we can do that. And so, you know, one of the things that I've, I've loved has been engaging the, the kingdom theology. I, I you know, I, I was, for lack of a better word, like discipled and mentored in my early Christian days by, by people who were heavily influenced by dispensationalism. And, and, and for them, dispensationalism was, was, was everything. I, I had a different window to deconstructing it when I when I started studying theology myself, but I'd very much discovered uh, some vineyard, some of the early vineyard writings, the you know power healing, power evangelism, uh, Jack Deere's writings as well, uh, and that was before I I connected with with Richard and then later yourself, and it really put me in the position where where I started reviewing that because my my sense of calling about Christ was the whole thing of, of seek first the kingdom and make it your highest priority. And I felt like, like I was, I, I wrestled with that in my early days because firstly, I, I didn't know what that was, but I had the sense that it wasn't actually about a political kind of kingship. And yet it was very difficult to, to, to come up with an understanding of, of, so what does this mean in terms of church? What does it mean in terms of ministry evangelism? And, and I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of important questions to ask because most people prepared for ministry are prepared to, to teach. But the thing of the kingdom, I think, is largely absent. I mean, to such an extent that I feel like if you just did a random, you know, pull out, you pull 10 people out that have been Christian for 10 years and said, 
give us a summary of 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 the kingdom of God and then show us show us demonstrate it you'd almost be left with uh well what do we do what do we say kind of experience are you are you finding that to to be shifting you know like is there is there a shift in that understanding of the kingdom as it's filtering down it is but but it's um it's a war it's a fight so look one of the things that the vineyard national directors have sort of wanted me to do is ensure that the next generation of vineyard leaders around the world really do understand what our theology is um and so you know all the courses i've taught uh, for vineyard institute and so on have attempted to do that and i'm now doing an international mentoring thing with um emerging leaders in the vineyard where we're going in great detail for a two-year program through the kingdom of god and they read most of my writings and other other guys like kulman and right and so on so uh and then in the new wine movement in england you know uh, westminster theological center which is a fully accredited college up to phd level and is connected to new wine if you go to its website you will see it's every degree is is a kingdom de- kingdom theology degree and this kingdom theology masters degree etc etc so and because of rights influence and the sort of um, connection between the vineyard and new wine in england you could say that it's quite permeated the new wine uh, circles outside of the vineyard and new wine there's the beginning of other movements getting onto it so i i have had quite a lot of interaction with another movement called church of the nations and i have spoken at two of their conferences and there's and they, quite a few of their people have done our courses and so there's a growing appreciation in those circles um i had the privilege of introducing john wimber to terry virgo and so there is some influence in the kind of new frontiers and and also into the new covenant circles um and alexandra fenter and i are, are having a lot of interaction with new covenant or ex new covenant uh, leaders in, in this country and um because i'm teaching as an adjunct professor for uh, trinity seminary in north dakota which has a footprint in south africa we've actually right now having a whole lot of young pastors sign up in south africa most of whom are not vineyard partly because they want to do kingdom theology and uh, quinton howard who runs the sort of south african version of vineyard institute which was telling me that he's through his scholarship program has a whole lot of pastors in places like democratic republic of congo and elsewhere who are you know leaders of these large independent churches in africa discovering kingdom theology and being blown away by it um 
but you know in terms of the the larger ecumenical church it's just the beginning and then you do get some of these pentecostals that are increasingly discovering it and of course some of the theologians that have made a real contribution are catholics and there seems to be a bit of a growing appreciation within the catholic uh, renewal you know of kingdom theology so you can you can follow it and its growing influence but but like in evangelicalism the predominant theological framework is still the lineage from the Ref reformation down into modern day evangelicalism which to me narrows down what the gospel is quite uh, dangerously so in um, in the part five of the kingdom reformation i have a whole thing on what i call reductionism and that it's the kingdom theology that produces a big picture of the gospel that includes you know signs and wonders and evangelism and mission and justice for the poor and environmental activism and and you know it's it's not a, a, a shrunk down definition of the gospel so i think the discovery of kingdom theology must lead to a review and redefinition of the what is the gospel that we preach what is the good news that we preach um, and there's a fight going on for that. Derek, would you say that that reductionism is very much the idea of the kingdom that is only yet to come in terms of that message of the gospel? Is I mean, that's sort of my take on it is, as I, I'm sort of coming new to the table in terms of kingdom theology and picking things up from Tim and my own reading, etc. And I, I must obviously dig into your work. But a lot of the prevalent perspectives in churches across the board denominationally that I've interacted with is the idea of, well, just do what you can now in this life and, you know, say your prayers, go to church, take communion or, you know, pray in tongues or whatever it might be that you can do in this time. And at some point, because you've got your passport stamped, you're going to get into the, to the actual kingdom one day. Is that the sort of the idea of the gospel reductionism that Jesus is just here as a sort of an international a spiritual home affairs official stamping passports through a one-time historical act um, or, or you see something different? Yeah, that's it. That's I like that passport idea. So look, there are two, there are two um, tributaries to reduction. Well, there, there are a whole lot. I go through seven things, but one of them, of course, is where you get dispensationalism like for, for many Pentecostals, if you say kingdom of God, they think the end of the world or the, the last days. Um, not now, you know. Uh, if you're a Protestant, there's a different reductionism that the whole gospel is, is the cross and from the cross, personal justification. And so if I pray the sinner's prayer, put my faith in Jesus, I am justified, and when I die, I'll go to heaven. Um, so Jesus came to die for my sins so that, that um, I, I can be justified by faith and, and go to heaven. Um, and not very much about 
therefore how I live in this world now. Um, and that's a very me gospel. Jesus came for me so that my sins can be forgiven, so that I can go to heaven. Kind of, you know, blow the rest. Um, so there are different kinds of reductionism, but when you put them all together, um, it, it lands up with people cherry picking this bit or that bit out of the big picture of the gospel and elevating it, but not putting it in the context. I mean, very simply, you know, it's not just the cross, but it's the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the ministry of Jesus prior to the cross. That is all part of the gospel. Um, and of course, the cross is wonderful, but, but if you isolate that and elevate it as the only thing, you're not really preaching the gospel. And, and also the, the notion of the Christ of faith, of just the historical Christ, differs to the, the understanding that, that there is a present risen Lord that also engages and, and, and works in history. I mean, that's, that's, that's been part of my present struggle in the last year as I listened to what you talk about in terms of, of the breadth of what kingdom theology welcomes, allows, invigorates is kind of the sense that I get um, of this idea, you know, we, we can be invested in, in the earth environmentalism, we can be invested in the poor, we can be invested in signs and wonders, um, or connected with whatever is, I very much sense, you know, when you use the word war, I thought, oh, that's a bit strong. And then I suddenly thought, no, I think you're absolutely on the money. As I, as I think about some of the fights I've had with people, because it really feels like that. It's a fighting for, no, I don't think you can just take this and make it so thin. If we can just get enough people to say the Jesus prayer, then we're doing fine. Um, and, and I like that because that's, that's also been a sense that I've been carrying for the last couple of years around almost this, there's got to be a lot more to this. And just a couple of drops of holy water and a couple of holy words. Yeah. I mean, the war, it's really a fight over hearts and minds, I suppose. And, and what is our theology? So uh, Pentecostals uh, get converted to kingdom theology much easier because they're not cessationists. And it's actually the, the best framework for the Pentecostal experience you could imagine is kingdom of God theology. Where there is really a backlash is in the hyper-reformed guys who struggle with the idea that there's anything new after the Reformation and they feel they've got to defend the Reformation. And so some of the most vociferous uh, reaction has been to N.T. Wright by hyper-reformed guys. I mean, even sort of saying he's not even converted, you know, um, and he's, you know, misleading the church and so on. And um, so there's, a, there's, a, there's quite, a, you know, quite a clash there. And um, I mean, my view is that there's nothing that was good about the Reformation that we need to leave behind, you know. Salvation by grace through faith, the supremacy of, supremacy of scripture, all of those things must be embraced and are wonderful. But, um, you know, 
maybe this just spices it up a bit, but one of the things I talk about in the Kingdom of Reformation is uh, the post-Holocaust era, because also the period after the Second World War is after the Jewish Holocaust. And, you know, it's now being realized that Luther was an anti-Semite and wrote stuff about how to treat the Jews, which Hitler then obeyed and, of course, expanded on. And so a lot of the Protestant uh, theologians that are more sensitive have been sort of saying, well, how could this predominantly Lutheran country perpetrate the Holocaust? Well, one of the answers was their reformer started it. So there's this whole rediscovery of Jesus mutually by Jewish scholars and Christian scholars and to use an Afrikaans word, a whole tunothering between Jewish and Christian scholars. Um, and nowadays you get, you get Jewish scholars who no longer see Jesus as, as an imposter, but a, as a charismatically endowed sage. And you get Christian scholars saying, well, look, we, evidently not everything was perfect about the Reformation. We need to do a bit of soul searching and review things. So again, that makes some people willing to do that review, but others becoming very uncomfortable with that. They find it very threatening. Um, again, so that adds to the whole series sense that there's a fight going on for what is the heart and soul of the gospel i i, I think i i like the the, the framing of um of out there i just want to i'm just going to quote you briefly yeah <laughs> you, you are quotable derek <laughs> um towards the end of your book you, you, you there's there's a, a bit of a um a summary statement yeah that's 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 quite that's quite nice so i'm just going to read it quickly the church has been reading the gospels for two millennia and not discovering the eschatological Jesus. This rediscovery of Jesus has been delivered by Jesus' research, not canonical readings of the gospels. The many false starts and blind alleys of the re Jesus' research have not led nowhere, but somewhere significant. Um, you know, it, it's it's one of the paragraphs there and you, you, you unpack a little bit further, but there's a very naive statement that you get from a lot of people where, where they go, I just read the Bible. You know, and so I have it in pure form. I'm not influenced by my church. I'm not influenced by, you know, I just get this, you know, the scripture is the word of God. It's fallen from heaven. I read it in a pure form, <laughs> you know, um, which is a terribly naive and simplistic um, and often divisive reading because we read through the lens almost, almost like it's like trying to read that children's story that you know the answer to you know, reading the gospels in many ways, you know, uh, or the Bible, you know, few people read the book as a whole or the New Testament as the whole or the Bible as a whole or anything like that and build a picture. Um, most of our windows are these slivers and, you know, contextually the meaning can change quite, quite drastically. Um, and, and, and so I feel like, like, like one of what, one of the, the nice things about your statement there is that it, it doesn't create a tension between the academic contribution which is as heartfelt and as committed. You know, again, it's a big picture thing. There's no tension between the academic contributions and reading the scripture, but there is a big difference in terms of how scripture is being read and interpreted 
interpreted at those levels. What's nice about this this kingdom reformation and the kingdom theology stuff is is I feel like in some ways it's it's taking people back perhaps to the naivety of 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 the gospels as well by doing that of of almost stripping away the layer the the, the layering that we get through our churches and our church experience because for a lot of people I feel like we still live with a faith that is predominantly grows through through birthing new people that are culturally Christian. And so, and so even that, that old Pentecostal language, I guess that became about, you know, the whole Keswick experience, the second experience or the second blessing and that, I, I think, I think historically, we still need to review those things as though they're not people that are Christian having a second blessing that is somehow more special. It's people that are culturally and nominally Christian coming to experience God for the first time and then reevaluating their life and faith. You know, I think that there's there's different windows like that on history that we we still yet to wrestle with and and almost rethink so that our thinking rec- recognizes or respects the worldview that people are in and that the the worldview that you're in and the faith that you're raised in can be culturally and nominally Christian, however one associates that with the, the gospel, the kingdom of God and faith. But that that kind of cultural heritage is is actually not what Christ is speaking about, or what's not what Scripture is speaking about, and, and and kingdom theology kind of challenges the understanding that we can inherit inherit faith in that way and create a Christian society in that way. You know, I don't know if there's something in any of that murky ramblings that you you possibly want to respond to. That I'd like to say two things to that. In in one of my footnotes in part five of Kingdom Reformation, I I reference the discipleship-making movement phenomenon in the world today, called DMMs for short. And there's this massive movement uh, of evangelism amongst non-Christians following a particular methodology of small groups reading the Bible together, uh, like in many Islamic cultures, where they read the Gospels and they go and try and do what the Gospels talk about. And so because it's predominantly either non-Christians or very early Christians, they've got no baggage at all. And they have a very simple tools of sort of inductive Bible study, but with a heavy emphasis on going and doing it. And, you know, some of the figures of how quickly this movement is growing in places like Iran or uh, Turkey or uh, parts of Africa is, is almost unbelievable. And what is, I've met some of the leaders of, of that and, and there's literature they've written. And what comes out is these people discover the kingdom of God as Jesus taught it in almost that naive way you've described of reading it at face value, believing it, and trying to put it into practice. And so they talk about lots of healings that happen and, and things like that, uh, experiences of the presence of Jesus, you know, in these Islamic countries and so on. And it shows the power of reading the Gospels and the, and the voice of Jesus in the Gospels um, without baggage and naively and it's very powerful. On the other side of the spectrum, of course, is the whole shift from modernism to postmodernism, which I analyze. And the naivety of the modernist is that we don't read with lenses. 
you know, it's me and my Bible and I read the Bible and, and what I get out of it is unfiltered. But of course, what we've learned from postmodernism is that everybody is situated in culture and language. And so for most Western Christians in the various traditions they're part of, they are unconscious of the lenses they have when they read the text. Uh, whether they are, uh, you know, racially determined or nationally determined or ideologically determined, uh, people do not come to the text without presuppositions. They are riddled with them. Uh, and the whole thing about Jesus' research now and the rediscovery of Jesus is that the historical context of Jesus is the game changer. Um, and situating Jesus as a Jew in Second Temple Judaism within all the thinking and literature and worldview of his time uh, is absolutely essential to understanding what he's saying. So on the, you know, that's on the other side of, of naivety, if you like. It's more becoming conscious of worldviews and presuppositions. And that's the whole area where N.T. Wright is sort of, you know, focused. I, I, I like I like the contrast of those two because I, I find that often the reference to those uh, DMMs in 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 non-Western environments where people they approach the, the the Gospels as though the Gospel is an outside work, and and you therefore almost in a sense you, you've got the filter of going this is a foreign work to us we're engaging it as a foreign work but we're taking this jesus seriously and there with the spirit and the experience of god seriously so so there is uh, almost a um a, a framework of biases and assumptions that enables people to do that in non-western environments in a, in a in a western and a westernized environment where we've got a long history of christianity and where christianity is so successfully discredited itself um our framework counts against us whereas in other parts of the work their framework counts for them you know I, I think of it as a difference you know like when i chat to costa and he talks about his relationship with his father and his relationship with god and how his relationship with his father is this wonderful bridge and window that enables him you know for many people like myself um my experience of my father completely disables my interaction with god you know, it's a, it's a completely different experience. And I feel like in, in some ways, what we, what we often not conscious of, because I, I feel like in some ways we, we, we've got a, um, we put the same, we try to put the same naivety on to Western people. And, and I think that's an unfair thing to put onto people. Um, because most Western people that I know, for them to read the gospels and take them seriously is to cr clash against the strong presuppositions that actually keep them from Jesus because a lot of the biases and the preloading that they've got are barriers to Jesus. And that actually comes from Christianity in our culture and our context. So in some ways, like I think the, the war is, is, is in one part, one that really has to be taken seriously within the context of the church, because our modern postmodern or perhaps better yet a post secular and post secular environment 
is is one where 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 Christianity is 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 largely the motivator for people to deconvert. It's not the motivator for people to convert. And there's a war that really does need to be won, that really does need to be taken seriously. And and what I like about the the, the kingdom theology and you know reading and wrestling with your writings is the sense that that more and more people are taking that seriously. And more and more people are taking the serious seriously in the context of the business of doing church and the business of leading churches. And and I think that there's a lot of very important questions and challenges that follow that then shake up what we do in terms of ministry and professional ministry, you know, per, perhaps even to such a degree that it, 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 it again reconstitutes our understanding of what the church is and what the work of the ministry is. Yeah, so the, the, there's no Westerner who doesn't have a lot of biases. Um, they just saturated in it. And really, Christianity has become now uh, a majority world phenomenon and growing exponentially in the majority world and shrinking in the Western world. You know, I mean, statistically, that nobody can deny that. Um, and, and it is a different lens with which they read the scriptures, no doubt about it. So one of, one of the guys that, you know, I think is, is a good guy is Craig Keener at, from Asbury in the States, who's a monumental author, you know, volume-wise. Volume and he critiques the assumptions of um, Western materialistic thinking. Uh, and he repeatedly says, well, we assume that because we think like this in the West, this is the way to think. But he says, actually, the majority world doesn't think like this at all. Um, and he talks about how many theologians are operating in a minority within a minority within a minority kind of a thing, you know. Um, uh, and yet they're assuming that their worldview is, is the only one. I like that. Sorry, and I was just going to say, I like that picture of the minority within the minority within the minority. I think that would be a very helpful lens with which to look at ourselves as a Christian church or leaders, um, thought leaders, etc. Yeah, um, Derek, I'm, a, I'm aware that we've had you for an hour and 45 now already. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very sure that you've got, uh, you've got stuff that you've got to get back to. But, I, you know, I, I really would love to to have you back for another conversation or two if you'd be if you'd be game for it i have got some things i've got to get through in the next while i i i'm behind schedule in producing a, a syllabus for the seminary and and um, i've had so many other things taking up my time so i'm a bit i'm a bit stressed at the moment but in another couple of months i hope to be through that period and um have a bit more freedom we, we can we can recognize you know like we we had a conversation with Carl Tyhart um a couple of weeks ago and about how the research really just yields um you know in the research into church leaders needs kind of like reports back that the biggest unfulfilled need of people is the is the need for intimacy with God which then raises questions of what does that mean and uh, I think that that kingdom theology brings something to the table along those lines and 
um i think the implications of that aren't you know there, there's there's a good wrestling between the implications of the need for intimacy with god and the sense in which the kingdom of god is all about the relational presence of god and so so that 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 enables uh theological questions to follow you know uh with with the potential to wrestle through that towards the sense of expectation of what can we expect relationally from god what can we expect in terms of the immediacy of god um the presence and the absence of god and the interplay between it and i think that there's a lot within kingdom theology um you know certainly in terms of uh, reading the eschatological framework and that that you put forward that um that i think brings some some kind of way of reading you know it brings it brings a lens to 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 the question that allows us to answer it in light of the ministry and the work of jesus rather than to discount the ministry and the work of jesus and to discount the presence of god because all we have are these crazy pentecostals <laughs> if you know what i mean you know um because i feel like like largely when i deal with the reformed people there's a large discounting of any sense of of experiencing god along these lines because of the pentecostals and you know often the sense of oh please don't make the mistakes the pentecostals did right on one hand and then on the other hand um there's there's a sense in which when when people are looking well certainly when i talk to people and and we get onto the subject of, of of their sense of the experience of God or their hunger for God, what's put on the table always is is the barrier of the church and the institution of the church and 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 the, and the history of the church. You know the ways in which Christianity discounts the encounter with God, or what it sells the encounter to mean, and and that's not a it's not a relational encounter. It's a it's a um, it's an ideological encounter at that level. And so I think that there's there's some really good conversations for us to perhaps pick up and chew through at that level. If I can pose one quick last question to you, I'd love to know, in terms of get digging into kingdom theology around your work, where would you suggest people start start in terms of, of your writings? If you had to say, start with this book, um, what could people dig into? So I talk about my trilogy and in each of the three, the other two books are introduced. So there's Breakthrough, which is the primary text, which is a biblical theology. There's um, the Kingdom Reformation, which is more an academic work, but part one and part five is kind of similar in some ways to mapping out biblical theology. And then demonstrating the kingdom is a practical theology of ministry based on the kingdom. So around that, I've got a lot of other smaller publications that, you know, go into particular parts of the New Testament or issues like human rights or whatever, issues of justice. But those are the core. And breakthrough is really where people should start. And then probably in terms of methodology, part one and part five of, of the Kingdom Reformation, and then demonstrating the kingdom would be a good progression. We we will have the Amazon links to all your works in the um, um, in the show notes. Yeah, I've got my I've got my own website now, which which has a, a page that details all my publications. Oh, fantastic! Oh, well, I'll I'll include that link as well. If Kingdom Kingdom Theology. Okay, perfect. 
Excellent. Um, but Derek, uh, th thank you from my side. This is, uh, it's always a privilege to be able to get some of your time like this. Okay. Great. Thanks, guys. Okay. All right. Cheers.